If you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Robert Campbell of New Beginnings was here, and um, you know it was a great experience. And one of the things that people said was, you know, I just liked his enthusiasm, and I liked that we could say Amen, you know, at some point during the service. So let's just try that now. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. All right. So if you just feel an Amen coming out at some point, and I know you felt it at different points, because I could feel it. And then I would talk to you after the service and you would say, I wish I could have said amen right there. And so nobody's preventing you. So you can say amen. And I've got my sweat towel. I told Robert I would bring my sweat towel. So if I started, you know, beating up, I would have my towel handy. So I've got my towel and you have your amens and we'll be ready to go from this chapter in John 18. Uh, most of you know that as uh, living on the coast, you're confronted with hurricanes. And because we are uh, on the coast, you understand that there are really two different kinds of winds associated with hurricanes. The first wind is the circular wind or the surface wind. And that's the wind that gets measured if you want to try to put the hurricane in a particular category. So if, if it's circular winds or surface winds reach 74 miles an hour, moves from a tropical storm into a Category 1 hurricane. But you also probably are aware that the circular winds or the surface winds don't actually have to do with the direction of the hurricane itself. The direction is determined by what are called the prevailing winds of the hurricane. The prevailing winds are outside winds that act on this hurricane to guide it and get it in a particular path or a particular direction. Sometimes those are called steering winds. Well, this morning uh, we're transitioning into a new series as we approach Easter. I thought it would be helpful for us to examine Jesus. That's what usually the Lent season is for. And with this transition into the new building, we weren't able to get into the series right at Lent. But I thought we would look through the Gospel of John chapter 18, 19, and 20 over the next few weeks. And as we look at these chapters, really try to examine Jesus. What is, what is Jesus like? What is He doing? What's happening in these very critical chapters? If you're, not, if you're a visitor here, typically we're going through books of the Bible or chapters of the Bible. So we'll just be working our way through the text here in chapter 18 today. And we'll move on to the other chapters as we go along in the coming weeks. But if we were reading through, if we had started a study in John and started with John 1.1 in the beginning, and we've gotten to John chapter 18, by the time you reach John chapter 18, it would be accurate to say that you've landed at a very stormy point in the Gospel of John. You might say the Garden of Gethsemane is landfall for a Category 5 hurricane in John chapter 18. And our question, the question I have as we read through this text, is with all the events that are swirling around, all the the surface winds, the the things that you can see, my question for us from this text is, who's really in control? I mean, a lot, there, there are several different characters here. There's a lot of different things happening, but who is ultimately in control? Who's really steering the course of this hurricane? A little background here. Uh, when we read these chapters, 
uh, it helps us to keep John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 in mind. So if, you're, if, you're, if you have your Bibles open, just turn to that. And John tells you what his purpose is for his entire book. Chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. This is the purpose of the whole book of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the one the Old Testament has been talking about. He is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is saying, I've tried to write down a lot of surface events, but the surface events are really meant for you to focus on who Jesus is, to turn your attention to him, to understand that in him you really have life, not only in this world, but in the life to come. A little background here is Jesus has been in the upper room. He's been a part of the Last Supper, um, the last Passover in John chapter uh, 15, 16, and 17. And you reach chapter 17, and it's a prayer. It's Jesus' last prayer before they depart. And when you get to chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1, that means when he finished his prayer, he went out and he went across to the Kidron Valley. So Jesus is exiting Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a walled city. He's exiting to the east side, and there's a valley called the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. And it has a number of olive olive trees and orchards in that valley. You even have those uh, orchards there today if you go to Jerusalem. And apparently there's some area in the Kidron Valley that's a separated garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's a, a place that the disciples were used to going to with Jesus. And so Jesus exits east. He goes into the Kidron Valley. He goes to this sort of favorite spot of he and his disciples. And it's a spot that Judas would be aware of. So when Judas comes looking for Jesus and the disciples, he's going to go back to the, to the same place that they've been to many times. The garden, as I said, is the landfall point for uh, certainly the most powerful storm that ever hit our planet. And, and when you read through these chapters, especially 18 and 19 here, one of the striking features about the four different characters that we're going to look at, at is that every character is trying to act like God. When you look at this text, what you're going to see is that every character in the text is trying to act like God. And they're trying to do it by these two ways. They're trying to exercise two divine characteristics. First, they're trying to exercise foreknowledge. They're trying to say, well, I want to look into the future and I want to see what's happening and I want to predict what's going to happen. And so they're trying to exercise one divine characteristic. They're trying to look into the future. And then the second characteristic they're trying to exercise is sovereignty. Now that I know the future, I'm going to bend events to get to my will. That makes sense? I can see the future, I can see what's happening, and so I'm going to exercise control over what's happening right now so I can bend the events of right now into and steering into the thing that I want to see happening in the future. Well, we're going to look at these four characters or uh, people in the story and see how they do it. Pilate 
you'd read mostly in the latter part of chapter 18 and 19, was the Roman ruler. He was the government official in the area. And he's the one who had ultimate control over who was going to die in his little sphere of influence. And so he gets a face-to-face meeting with Jesus. And Pilate's very paranoid. He doesn't want anybody overthrowing the government, and he doesn't want anybody overthrowing himself. And when he has this little face-to-face encounter with Jesus, Jesus starts talking to him about he's a king. Jesus is a king. And that upsets Pilate. And what he does is he looks into the future and says, well, this guy's disturbing my little kingdom. And if he keeps going on this trajectory, then I might be overturned. The whole Roman government might be overturned. And so I'm going to exercise my control right now, and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen, and I'm going to send him to the cross. So Pilate is acting like God. He's looking out into the future. He's saying, this is what I see happening, and now I'm going to bend the events so they happen according to my will. Well, it's the same thing of the chief priests and the religious leaders. If you were to look back on John chapter 12, at one point, the chief priests get together and they say this, look how the whole world has gone after him. You see, the the chief priests had their own religious structure. They had their own power. They were in charge. And what they could see was this, this new rabbi had come onto the scene, and they're saying, hey, he's starting to draw our congregation away. He's trying, to, he's trying to upset things. And when, when he upsets the people, then they might just turn us over. And I don't want to be turned over. I don't want to be turned upside down. And so the chief priests look and say, well, we see the trajectory of where this new teaching's going. And we don't like how it's getting to that point. So we're going to exercise power. We're going to exercise control. And we're going to manipulate the situation so that we get rid of this new rabbi. And so they go to the Roman government. They get uh, a lot of soldiers together and they go arrest Jesus in order to have Jesus killed. Then we have Peter. I mean, poor, don't, don't you, aren't you glad you weren't Peter? I mean, just your life, on, your, your life and your mistakes on display in the Bible for pastors for thousands of years to articulate over and over again. I mean, I'm glad that's not my life for the next 2,000 years, that you, you 2,000 years from now, aren't saying, well, let's look at Paul. I mean, just mistake after mistake. But I'm so thankful for Peter because I see myself in Peter so often. But we look at Peter here, and he's the one. He's the one with the master's degree. He's gone to the best seminaries. He's gotten three solid years with the Master Himself. He's been sitting with Jesus for three years. And he's been hearing Jesus say things like this, Peter, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Or, Peter, we're going to Jerusalem where I will be betrayed to the chief priests, and they will condemn me to death, and three days later I will rise. So, so Jesus has been getting Peter ready for three years for this point. Peter, I, I've been getting you ready for this very moment, 
right here in the garden. Now we're going to see if the degree is going to pay off. Well, Jesus looks at Peter and Peter gets caught up in the surface winds. You see, a storm has come. All these soldiers have come. And and Peter's sort of eyeing the situation. And he can see the trajectory of the situation. He's looking into the future. He's using what he thinks is his foreknowledge and saying, I don't think this is going to work out the way I had planned. So now I'm going to take power. I'm going to take control of the situation. And I'm going to bend it so it works according to my plan. And he pulls out a sword. And he starts hacking away at people. You see, you see, that's exactly what's happening with all three of these different characters. They're all trying to exercise foreknowledge. They're all trying to use their sovereign power to make things happen. And here we have Peter, the one with the master's degree, the one with the best seminary. And he pulls out the sword to save Jesus. I mean, what would you be thinking right at this point, if you were Jesus. I mean, you're not terribly surprised at the Roman government. They were heavy-handed. They didn't want anybody turning anything over. You're not terribly surprised with the Pharisees and the chief priests. You've had three years of encounters with them. They've been problematic the whole time. But Peter, your star pupil, your star disciple... And you've been telling him for three years, this is the way it's going to unfold, Peter. I want you to know it. Right when the storm is at the darkest point, you've got to know this. You've got to act on it. And Peter pulls out the sword. How would you feel if you were Jesus? I mean, if I were Jesus, I would say, guys, just take him instead of me. I mean, you know, just, just, you know, I mean, he's blown it. He can't seem to get it. You've come for somebody, just take this guy. But aren't you glad that even with the best degree and the worst of mistakes, that Jesus doesn't say that about you? Amen? That even though you know the right answer, you know how it's supposed to turn out, you decide because you see a trajectory that you want that's not what God wants, and you're going to bend that to your will, that you take out your own power and say, it's got to work out this way. And you start swinging away and trying to make things happen. Everybody in the story is trying to act like God. Everybody in the garden wants to be God. And if you don't know when that started, just go back and read Genesis chapter 3. When people decided in another garden... They really wanted to have foreknowledge and they wanted to exercise their own control over their own destiny. It's the same thing that's happening in this garden. It's interesting that when you read this scene, nobody has any idea what God is doing. You notice that? Nobody. Not the seminary degree guy, not the religious guy, and not the secular guy. All three of them are sitting there. They're looking at the same surface winds, but they have no idea what God is up to. Except for Jesus. Because although Jesus is affected by the surface winds, Jesus is definitely affected by the surface winds. 
but he's not directed by the surface wind. You see, Jesus has complete trust that there's a prevailing wind. There's another wind that's steering the situation that even though I may be in the middle of a storm and even though the circular winds and the surface winds may be telling me a different story, I know there's a prevailing wind that in the end, God's going to direct things as He would like to direct them. That God Himself is going to have the last word. Now, everyone here this morning is affected by a surface wind. You have situations. You have people. You have jobs. You live in families. You, you have a history. You have all kinds of things that may sort of just add up at times to feel like a, a Category 5 hurricane in your life. And you're affected by them. But my question is, are you directed by them? might say it this way, is your life more like a balloon or an airplane? I mean, when you go out and you, you, you get up in the air, you know, a balloon, it just has to go wherever the wind is going. It has no ability to, to go in a different direction. In fact, with a balloon, you could just, and you can make a balloon just travel in the direction you want by a little puff of your own wind. It's directed by the circular wind. But it's not the same with an airplane. You may take off from ILM in Wilmington and you may want to land in Denver. But does it make any difference to you if there is an east wind that day? I hope not. I mean, you hope that there's enough power that the plane can overcome the east wind. That the surface winds aren't directing the trajectory of the airplane. And so we have to ask ourselves about our lives. Are we more like a balloon? Just whatever happens to be happening on the surface, that's how our lives are directed? Or, or do we really trust? Do we really trust that there is a God who has foreknowledge and control and He has the prevailing wind that whatever's happening in your life right now is going to work out the way He wants it to work out. Well, there's one final character, and that's Jesus. We want to examine Him. We want to see in this text His confidence and control. If, again, if we were reading through the book of John, we've seen it in a number of places. John chapter 7, verse 6, He looks at His disciples and He says, Right now is not the right time. My time has not yet come. John chapter 7. John chapter 17, he prays, Father, now is the right time. You see, Jesus is in control of all timing. Nothing is happening in Jesus' life that's just random. Everything that's happening to him, he's timed it out just for this particular time. Not only in Jesus' life, but in your life as well. John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says this, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me. 
from me. John chapter 10. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus has all authority over his own life, his own death, and his own resurrection. John chapter 14. He tells this to his disciples in a very familiar verse. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you with me so that you may be where I am. Jesus is in control of all timing events. He's in control of his own life, his own death, and his own resurrection. And he's in control of all future things, his future and your future as well. I could list 20 more in the book of John. Then we reach this passage in John 18. A band of soldiers come. It's a technical term. It's a military term, and it means 600 soldiers. So some some large contingency. We don't know if, if they meant, well, we just counted them when we got 600, or it looked like this particular term, a band of soldiers, but some Five, four, five, six hundred men come into the garden looking for this one peasant man. All armed. And then look at this in verse 4. Knowing all that would happen to him. Knowing all that would happen to him. What's it say? Jesus came forward. What a stunning phrase. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen to him. And instead of trying to run out and get lost in the crowd, he walks forward. You know, a little earlier in John, when some of the disciples and some of the people of the land who had seen Jesus do miracles, you remember what they tried to do? They tried to make him a king. And Jesus, John says this, Jesus withdrew. When the people wanted to make him a king, he withdrew. When the soldiers came to crucify him, what did he do? He stepped forward. Jesus is in complete control of what's happening in this garden. All kinds of surface winds are happening. All kinds of storms are breaking out. And everybody's trying to exercise real power and real control and foreknowledge. And Jesus is the only one who Who's doing it perfectly? Verse 6, Jesus asks who they're looking for. They say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus responds, it's best put in the Greek, I am. It's not I am he, as it's written in your Bibles. I am. You know where that comes from? You remember where that comes from? Very famous Old Testament quote. Moses says to God, who do I say sent me? And God himself says, just say, I am sent you. So Jesus, although earlier in John said, I am the bread of the light. I am bread. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. All of those are true. But at this particular point, he's standing up and he's looking at this, all these people, Peter, the chief priest, 
the soldiers, and he's declaring his own divinity by taking God's name for himself, and he's saying, I am. And when that happens, this band of soldiers, 600 men, fall down. It's funny to me that when you read some of the commentaries about this, some will say, well, the, the first line was caught off guard. So they stepped back, and then it was kind of a domino effect. Everybody's falling down on each other. But we know that can't be true. Because any time humanity gets a little sliver, a little glimpse of divinity, what happens in the Bible? People lose their footing. People are falling down all the time. And so Jesus is giving these people a little tiny sliver and everybody falls down flat. And when they have enough strength to get back now, who is it that you're looking for? I mean, I would have been, if I had been a soldier, I'd been running the other way at this point. Jesus in verse 7 through 10 He's at the center of the storm. He's giving direction. He tells the soldiers, now soldiers, this is what's going to happen. You're, you're going to let these guys go. Right, we're going to let these guys go. We're just after you. Peter, you're going to put your sword away. Right, I'm going to put my sword away. I mean, Jesus is right here in the middle of this storm, and he's directing every event that's happening. And I want you to see that when we look at these verses, it's crucial to understand that Jesus isn't limited or restricted by evil. Jesus is not limited or restricted by the evil intent of other people. Jesus is not limited or restricted by your mistakes. Jesus is not limited or restricted by your failures. You see, Jesus is complete control. And He has no limitations. Evil intent does not limit Jesus. And your mistakes do not limit Jesus. Do you think after reading through this, there's any possibility that Jesus thinks that what's taking place is accidental? This, the darkest of hours, enemies are winning, friends are abandoning them. Is it, is it possible that Jesus thought God the Father just doesn't have control over this situation? This is a critical, critical question for you. Do you think in this darkest moment of the entire history of this planet that Jesus thought God's not in control. There are no prevailing winds. No way. No way. He understands that God's going to have the final word. Even though there's death and even though there's destruction, God's going to get the final word. And so here's my question for you. Do you think God foresaw you in your current circumstances? Do you think it's an accident that you just happen to be where you are in your life right now? Did he not know it? Did you get into something and he just sort of had to catch up to you? 
golly, I didn't realize Paul was going to go right there. Now I've got to run and catch up with him. I was hoping he was going to take a left, but he didn't. Is it possible that God foresaw you in your current circumstances? Do you think God knows your future? Do you think God has complete control over your future? Do you think God has the power to take your sin, your mistakes, pain you have endured as a result of evil actions of other people, and bend them to His sovereign will? These are big and important questions. Can God take your sin? Can He take your mistakes? Can He take the evil intent that someone else perpetrated against you and bend those things to His sovereign will? Or some way, He's outside of that circle. He can't control that. If you're a follower of Christ, these are critical questions. Have you embraced the truth that God has the last word? You see, what keeps Jesus moving forward in this situation is not his friendships. What keeps Jesus moving forward is not therapy. What keeps Jesus moving forward in this darkest of events is not medication. What keeps him moving forward is his absolute trust in the sovereignty and power of God. And that's what keeps him moving forward. And my question to you is, do you believe that for yourself? Do you think God has you in this place by his own design? Or is it just accidental? Does he know your future or does he not? Is he in complete control of all events or is he not? Let me just close with some points of application that I think will be helpful and how this truth helps us today. First, uh, it helps keep our life in perspective. God is always bigger than your circumstances. Amen? I mean, here's what happens to me. When I feel like my circumstances or the surface winds of my life are getting up to Category 5, God seems to get small. I keep asking myself, well, where are you now? This is the time to come in. Come in and do what? Come in and do what I want. That's what I'm saying. I'm projecting out, God, that this isn't working according to my plan. And if you would come in and I could use your power to bend it according to my divine will, boy, we'd all be happy. And God just seems to get small when our problems get big. And this text is helping us understand you're going to have some massive Category 5s in your lifetime. But there is a prevailing wind that God is ultimately in control of all of those circumstances.
astounding thing to me. Wow, I just came on. This must be, yeah. Amen that you hadn't been hearing me up to this point. But here, here is the most startling passage for me, in, in, in not all of Scripture, but one of the most startling passages, and you'll remember it. Jesus is in the disciple, in the boat with the disciples. They get halfway across the lake, and they start floundering, right? They're just about ready to go under. They've tried to do everything they can within their power to save themselves. And finally, when they can't, they've run out of all of their options, they go back, and Jesus is what? He's asleep. It seems like he's gotten small. That's how I feel like when my problems are big. God, are you asleep? If I yell, if I jump up and down, can I get your attention? And Jesus looks at him, and this is what's terrifying to me. He looks at him, and he doesn't say, I'm really concerned about your life. I'm so glad you got me up. Why didn't you wake me up earlier? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, where is your foreknowledge? What does he say? Where's your faith? Your faith in me is all that matters, not your foreknowledge. And so you and I are free not to have foreknowledge from this passage. The second thing we're free from, and oh, how helpful this is. You're free not to be sovereign. You are free not to be in control of everything. You don't have to work everything out. I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to be the filter for which every decision goes through so I make sure everybody knows what I think about it. I don't have to bring everything to perfection. I don't have to bring myself to perfection. I don't have to bring you to perfection. I don't have to bring this church to perfection. I'm not sovereignly in control of those things. I don't have to make every right decision with every right motive for every right end. I can trust that when I make mistakes, I can trust that when I make mistakes or other people make mistakes, they don't have the last word. I mean, how freeing is that? That you don't have the last word. Your mistakes are not the last word. Somebody else's mistakes are not the last word. God gets the last word. And when I think about how this helps is that when you think about God's will, and so often you think about God's will as like this skinny little line that runs through 80 years of your life. And you're either sort of on it or off of it. And if you ever get off of it, you sort of, I've blown it. I've ruined my life. I took a right and God wanted me to take a left. And now I'm sort of forever off it. Not true. Why is it not true? God's bigger than your mistakes. God's bigger than you getting off the right track. So helpful as a preacher or an evangelist that I don't I don't get the last word. I don't have to have the last word. I mean I couldn't tell you how many people I've talked to in my years at Young Life or here at the church about Christ. And and I and I think, oh, did I say it right? Did I put it just in the right way that, that person could pick it up? 
And then I walk away and say, I don't have to have the last word. The last word is God, not mine. So helpful if you're a parent. Gosh. And I, I want to be careful here because I, and I know you know me well enough. I'm not removing your responsibility as a parent. You have a biblical, God-given responsibility. But, but don't you find it? I find this easy for me. To, to get locked up in the fear that your failure, your lack of knowledge, is going to doom your child. Do you not have that fear at times? My, my being a single parent, my being a parent with somebody who doesn't really believe in Christ, somehow that's going to be the last word in my child's life. And the truth is, God gets the last word in my child's life, not me. Amen? That is so freeing to know, yes, I do have a responsibility. Yes, I'm supposed to try to have knowledge and all those things, but I'm not going to be perfect. But God gets the last word. I don't get the last word in the life of my child. I don't get the last word in your life. God has the last word. There are prevailing winds that are steering things. And it's just not me. Finally, I think it's helpful if you've had some terrible violation. Could be um, cancer. I, I know I felt that way when my mother died. But I was really thinking of it as when an enemy or someone you thought was a friend has abused you. Maybe you live underneath sort of a cloud. Somehow that event never really got addressed. Either you didn't get your answers all worked out or something happened and it just, you you can't you feel like you can't say it or the person sort of got away or a bunch of hard things like that. I think John 18. I mean, here is the worst thing in the world. The death of Christ. I'm not trying to minimize your pain, but the worst thing in the world is the death of Christ. And God gets the last word. Amen. He's saying, no matter what may have happened, even if you don't have the right answers, or you can't figure out why this happened to you, why this happened to your mother, why this happened to your friend. Look, those are, those are circular wins that are definitely going to have an effect on your life. I'm not trying to minimize that. I'm just trying to help you see that God gets the last word. Word. If you don't believe that, and some of you probably don't, then you're stuck. Because then you get the last word. Do you see that? (laughs) And you're not powerful enough. Oh, how I wanted the last word over the death of my mother. 
Oh, how I would want the last word over some of the things I've heard from you about your life. But if you don't believe that God ultimately has the last word, then you're stuck with you having the last word. And oh, how I don't want that. I don't have the power. I I wonder if you really trust when you examine Jesus that he gets the last word in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, there is great freedom in this passage. There are very big questions. Some of us are Pilate. Some of us are are the chief priest. Some of us are Peter. Trying to to have foreknowledge, trying to bend all the circumstances into our will, like that's sovereign over all creation. And, And we feel frustrated because things don't work out the way we want them to work out. And it's one way for your voice to to enter in and to say that you are divinely in control. And I don't have to have all foreknowledge. I don't have to have all answers. And I don't have to be sovereign over all situations. I can trust, even in the middle of the worst thing that's going to happen to my life, that a prevailing wind is operating. And that even if I die, you get the last word. In Jesus' powerful name, we pray. Amen.